The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future with totally new sources of information that will change the way you run your business. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, well, you know I'm going to promise you're in the right place because it's always true. You are. The buzz today, you can run, but you can't hide. Oh, what is she talking about? Well, let's grab some interesting news from the headlines. Apple versus the FBI, smartphone privacy, unlocking phones used by terrorists in a heinous killing, several of them in San Bernardino, California, not that long ago. Well, what does this mean to all of us? You're listening on the Business Channel. Many of you have businesses, your employees, your dreamers, entrepreneurs, your managers, your owners, whatever it is. Have you thought, have you really sat down and thought about what, I'm going to put quotes around the word innocent, innocent objects like your smartphones and other uh, cool internet-connected things, we're putting quotes around things, what are they doing to invite Bad people into your world, your home, your organization, your workplace, the government. We're talking about hackers, criminals, terrorists. I don't know if it could get any worse than those three categories. So are we bringing them in through all this connectivity? Well, if you haven't thought about it, we have, we are, and we do. I have a panel of three experts. They're going to weigh in on this question of Apple and the phone and unlocking and privacy. We're going to bring you their experts on how your business, because we're a business show, how your business can harness the vast good of Internet of Things, IoT, without inviting in the risks. We can't always make all those risks go away, but perhaps you can mitigate them, you can reduce them, you can keep them at bay. What an interesting panel we have today. First up, I'd like to welcome a newcomer to Game Changers Radio. He is Kent Sanders, the managing partner partner for cloud consulting and ERP architecture services in the global consulting practice at TCS. And a shout out to our friends at TCS. And Kent has sent me a fascinating quote from somebody who has never been on the Game Changers radio show. It's Field Marshal Helmuth Van Mulkey the Elder. I don't know if Kent knows there's an elder and there's a junior, but I found out this guy who lived 91 years from 1800 to 1891. He was a German field marshal. He's referred to as Moltke the Elder because his nephew, Helmut Johann Ludwig von Moltke, commanded the German army at the outbreak of World War I. A little background on, uh, on Moltke, by the way. Kent, just allow me to digress before we bring you on. Moltke loved music, poetry, art, archaeology, and theater. He spoke seven languages. Quite progressive for a guy in the 1800s. German, Danish, English, French, 
Italian, Spanish, and Turkish. I guess we did have all of those languages. He was a prolific artist who filled sketchbooks with landscapes and portraits and a popular author. I'm going to start there, stop there. He's quite an interesting guy. Here's the quote. No battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Kent Sanders, how are you today? I'm great, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. We are delighted to have you. And again, shout out to our friends, to Frank Diana, TCS, and Tiffany Stronsky, and all the wonderful people who work with us very frequently on Game Changers Radio. So tell me, Kent, are you a big fan of Mulkey the Elder, or whatever you want to call him? Well, I love his quote, and it's something that uh, um, I've actually lived through many, many times over as many different projects that I've managed, that it doesn't matter how well a project plan you put together as soon as you start doing the implementation work, things go haywire, and you have to be flexible so that you can adjust on the fly. And I've read a few books about him, uh, and he's, he's a very interesting character. Quite a character. Very well put. By the way, this quote, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy, and I'm going to ask you to <clears throat> put that, to link that specifically to our topic about IoT and privacy and, and cybercrime. Uh, Kent, it reminds me of a quote. I don't know who from whom the I don't know who the source is, but it's a very well known one. Uh, man plans, God laughs. You think? Yes, I agree totally. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me. What's the battle plan we're talking about? We're we're on Internet of Things Radio here. We're talking about privacy. And by the way, the title of this topic, in case our listeners haven't guessed yet, it's "Here's Looking at You, Kid." Yes, we're waxing Humphrey Bo- Humphrey Bogart today. Here's looking at you, kid, and listening to Internet of Things and cybercrime. So, how does this battle plan apply to our topic, Kent? Well, I believe it it applies because. You know, as companies are implementing more and more IoT technologies, and even we as as individuals are getting more involved in it, you know, when you think about the security and the privacy aspects, everybody has to understand that there is no such thing as 100% security. Um, Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say there's not even any such thing as 50% security. Mm. Um, Whatever you put in place, it will be hacked, and it can be hacked. You know, so if your plan and strategy going in is that, oh, yes, we are protected, my security administrators say we're fine, we followed all the best practices so we don't have to worry about it, then expect to make headlines because somebody will break into your system. And the way that you adjust to that, since you have to realize you can't keep it from happening, is that you have to be flexible and you have to constantly test you know, your security. You have to test whatever data privacy you put in place, and you have to adjust these things as you go. You can't just put it in, no matter how much money you've spent on a project to do it, and just walk away and say, we're good for the next two years. It just doesn't work that way. Thank you very much, Ken. So I think uh, it's safe to say that we're in a constant battle. We perhaps invited the battle in with all of these innovations and connectivity, and it's not going away anytime soon or forever. I I love your comment that don't even look at at 90% security, don't even think about 50% privacy and security. We'll talk about that more later. Ken Sanders, welcome to the show. Very happy to have you on board. And now let me introduce our second panelist. Well, he's no stranger to our show, been on many times. Very happy to have him back. It's Gray Scott, founder and CEO of SeriousWonder.com. He is a futurist, a techno-philosopher, oh, I love that, and an emerging technology expert. Gray has sent me an interesting quote from Borg in Star Trek. Now, 
I think I watched a lot of Star Trek with my kids when they were growing up. But Borg is a new concept to me. I must have been sleeping on those episodes, Gray. Uh, Borg, it's a plural noun. The Borg are a fictional alien race that appear as recurring antagonists in the Star Trek. Star Trek franchise, they use a process called assimilation to force other species into the collective capital C by violent injection of microscopic machines called nanoprobes. And this is the important part. The Borg's ultimate goal is achieving perfection. So here's the quote, three little words that pack a punch. We expect nothing less from Gray Scott's quote, resistance is futile. Gray Scott, how have you been? Welcome back. I'm doing well, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. We're delighted. Talk to me about these three little words, and are you a big Trekkie fan? Well, I was a huge Star Trek fan. I mean, Gene Roddenberry changed what it mean, what it meant to be a futurist, really. And uh, the reason I like this concept of the Borg is because what, what they're really talking about is uh, hive mind, or sort of a connected society. Now, We've talked about this before on the show, that we are sort of returning to a future of transparency. We're not moving towards a future of transparency. We're returning to that because there was a very long time in our evolution that we lived without privacy. And so I think there's there's sort of a digital uh, future to this transparency that we're moving towards. And that's what you're seeing with the Internet of Things. So tell me, do you agree with what Ken Sanders put out for us that we may as well give up on real privacy? It's just really 50-50, toss of the coin. Is it ever going to happen with any kind of assurance? Well, I agree with the quote, and I I actually like that quote a lot. And To me, it feels as if we are figuring out that, um, that the future of digital privacy has to be a two-way street. So, in other words, you can't have just one company or one government that says, we're going to have a firewall and the rest of you have to be transparent. It, it, it can't work that way. We all have to give some uh, transparency in our businesses, in our lives. And that's really started already. I mean, that's what the social network has, has eased us into. I mean, people are sharing right now on social networks things that they wouldn't have shared in the 50s and 60s. So, we are at a stage now where digital transparency is at our doorstep. Thank you. Very interesting, uh, your comment that we are sharing things we never would have dreamed of. There are a lot of things we never would have talked about either in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s, except what, what I'd like to call behind the back of the barn, you know, out, out back in the pasture when hopefully nobody was listening and there was no connectivity. But uh, perhaps... Uh, Gray, another quote comes to my mind. The lady doth protesteth too much, waxing a little Shakespeare there. What do you mean you know this about me? Well, didn't you just say that? Didn't you tweet it? Didn't you put it on your Facebook page? Didn't you make a video about it? Didn't you talk about it on YouTube? Didn't you put it on Pinterest? You mean, really? You think nobody would know? I rest my case. Gray, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for educating me on the Borg. And rounding out our panel today is David Yonker, Senior Director of Big Data Initiatives at SAP. He also is a returning guest here. And David has sent a quote from Rick 
Rick Smolin. Uh, Rick Smolin is a former time, life, and National Geographic photographer, best known as the co-creator of the Day in the Life book series. He's currently the CEO of Against All Odds Productions, which is a cross-media organization using the skills of hundreds of the world's leading photographers, writers, filmmakers, designers, and programmers to merge creative storytelling, which is a big, big thing today in business with state-of-the-art technology. And uh, here's a quick comment. Smolin is a 1972 graduate of Dickinson College, and uh, he is credited along with David Elliott Cohen for creating the mass market for large format illustrated books. How about that? So here is the quote. It's a long one. Put your seatbelts on early, kids. If someone had asked you 10 years ago, can I plant a device on you that would tell me who you've spoken to, what you're curious about, what books you've read, what money you spend? You would have said there is no way. But today, we line up at the Apple Store to pay $800 for such a device because it's so convenient. Well, that was well worth the read. David Yonker, welcome back to Game Changers. How are you? Thanks, Bonnie. I'm doing fantastic. Love the quote. And I have to ask you, is Rick Smolin related to the uh, Mr. Smolin who was on our show a couple months ago about the human face of big data? You brought me the production team. Is he a Absolutely. relative? In fact, in fact uh, yeah, they're brothers. Uh, and so. uh, they both worked on the project together. So, so Rick uh, created the book, The Human Face of Big Data, and then he teamed with his brother Sandy to turn it into a, a film. And, and the quote's actually from uh, CBS This Morning. So um, that that uh, he was uh, Rick uh, was recently on uh, CBS this morning, uh, promoting the the film because it, it had a national broad- broadcast on uh, PBS, and so this was a quote from his uh, interview on CBS this morning. Terrific! I recognize the last name, and by the way, Rick Smullen is also a member of the Curiosity Stream Advisory Board. I don't know what that is, but it sounds fascinating. Sounds like something Gray should probably be involved with, but we'll talk about that later. So, David, how come you picked this quote? It seems very perfect for us. Uh, talk to me. Is it one of your favorites? Well, that, so it it, uh, it fits the topic perfectly, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. we talk about. Um, you know, have, are we going to lose our privacy in the future? And, and um, you know, as Kent and Gray were saying, essentially we've already lost our privacy. We just don't really think about it in those terms. Um, and, and lots of people, governments, uh, individuals, hackers, you know, uh, criminals of various sorts and, uh, and the like, you know, are hacking our data um, and, and putting it to use, uh, whether we like it or not. Okay, thank you very much. You know, this is the part of the show where I usually go around the table and ask you all what's in your cup today, our little storytelling segment. But before we do that, I'd like to add another layer to the conversation. We're going to ask first Kent, then Gray, and then David. What about Apple versus FBI and your privacy? FBI, I'm looking at uh, NBC News 22 hours ago. The headline was the ACLU says ruling for the feds would be catastrophic. Here we go. Ken Sanders, TCS. Quick thoughts on what do you think? Who should win the battle? Who should be the standoff? Who should not give in? Well, you know, I wish there was an easy answer for this, but there's not. You know, emotionally, I side with Apple because you know, I'm, I'm big on privacy. Um, mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, the phone was not owned by the terrorists. It was owned by the county he worked for, and they have given permission to the FBI to mm-hmm. get into it. And the FBI is asking Apple for help. Um, 
when you think about it in those terms, it's like, well, why, Apple, why would you resist? But when you think about it in business terms, there's all kinds of reasons for them to um, resist. You know, so as much as I think about this, I honestly can't come down on either side. I just cannot seem to make up my mind. Interesting. And if that's the mindset of the people involved, this could be a protracted battle back and forth. And, you know, Kent, the longer it it lacks a decision, the longer we wonder what was really on that phone. Could they have been stopped? Could this horrible atrocity been averted? Will we ever know? So a, a lot is at stake here. Thank you for your POV. Let's go to Gray Scott, our futurist, official futurist on the panel. Gray, thoughts? Mm-hmm. Who should win this one or no one? Well, I don't think there's going to be a winner uh, either way in this because I think what's happening with Apple is that if you look at, at the intention of, of this scenario, the intention is that Apple wants to keep their code private. That's, that's the intention. And I understand that as a corporation. I understand they want to keep that code. It's a, it, you know, they, they spent a lifetime working on this, and they don't want to give this away because it could be used against them and it could be used against uh, their customers. But the true intention here is... Apple is always asking us individually for, you know, private data, right? They're always mining our data from our phones. They know where we go. They, the phones are tracking us. Um, these are things that, you know, you give freely to Apple. And that's, that's what I've been saying about this sort of future of digital transparency is it has to be a two-way system. Um, I, I think if you've looked into Bitcoin and if you understand how Bitcoin works, this idea that the, everybody is watching, right? That's the future, I think, that we're going to have to get to. And, and this situation with Apple is, it's great because it puts, it, it shines a light on a situation that every company is going to have to face in the future. We, every single company is going to have to say to themselves, what are our assets? How do we protect those digital uh, assets? And, and how much of those assets can be digitally transparent? Thank you very much. Digitally transparent, that's a very interesting concept. Thank you, Gray. And I, before we started the show, I asked you, if you're a futurist, is the future, well, well, I often define the future, Gray, as when I end a sentence with a period, what happens after that is the future, and then it's no longer the future. So it's, <laughs> it's what comes what comes next. I've actually been doing that because we have so many radio series now on Game Changers with the word future. We have the future of the future. We have the future of business. We have the future of the extended supply chain. We have all kinds of, all kinds of future shows, the future of work, the future of cars. My goodness, we are just I, – I think we're all just so intrigued by your title, Gray, that everybody wants a radio show talking about the future. I'm, I'm jesting. But it certainly is an interesting concept. Thank you. David Yonker, love to have your POV. Apple, FBI, privacy, who, who should or shouldn't unlock that phone? Yeah, well, you, you know, it, maybe even to step back before talking about unlocking the phone, you know, definitely I think Apple, uh, you know, has a, an obligation uh, and should help the authorities to provide, um, you know, as much information as they can about um, uh, you know the attackers and, and helping to figure out uh, the situation, but I, I think the the you know whether um, they should create a special instance of the iPhone software right so that they can unlock the data. That's essentially what my understanding is. That's essentially what they've been asked to do. They've been helping the FBI up to this point with as much stuff as they can. The question is, should they be opening up essentially a back door into the iPhone um, for authorities and? And that is a, um, 
you know, if it was one of these situations where it was a kind of a, it could be a one-off case, uh, I, you know, I would, I would definitely be supportive. But I, I, I really pause at the idea that um, of creating such a backboard, back, back door that can be used over and over again. Um, and it sets up a precedence, right? I mean, the, to flip the, the conversation around, right? Um, mm-hmm. There has been a lot of conversation and concern about um, uh, U.S. companies, for example, that the U.S. government's been asking U.S. companies to put back doors into their software solutions that can get deployed, and vice versa, other countries doing the same sort of thing. Um, and, and uh, you know, that causes a lot of uh, uh, sort of a, a level of uh, or a lack of trust among uh, companies, among consumers, among individuals about who's accessing all this information that we don't know about, right? The U.S. government does not have a great track record in terms of being very open about the information that they're collecting and what they're doing with it. Um, we know that there are lots of organizations within the government um, you know, where they're spending billions of dollars to collect your data without you knowing it, analyze it, make sense of it, understand who you are. Um, and, uh, and there are, of course, lots of arguments one way or the other about whether that's the right thing to do. But, um, you know, there, there are some people that would argue that that is very much against, uh, you know, our, our rights as individuals and as citizens. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. You know, the scenario in my mind is, can't we just get a locked room like they have on the uh, the TV show Scandal? There's a bunker that the president <clears throat> goes to. It's it's so many feet and, and depth of concrete, and there are guards at either end, and there is no outside communication. Can't we just take that phone and one or two techno people, gurus from Apple and the FBI, and just go into a bunker like this that's completely shut off from the world and just do it once and then not save the the code to get into the code and just do it just once and say, okay, this is what you wanted to know. Just put that phone into a time capsule somewhere and just everybody secretly walk out of the bunker. Anybody think that that could possibly happen? Gray, what do you think? I, I think that having a, a one-off uh, situation still creates a bad scenario for the future because what you're what you're asking is for uh, the government to have these special case scenarios and and if if you say want if you say yes once then of course if something happens again they're of course they're going to ask again so the problem is that you set a precedent for something that could turn into an avalanche of, of inquiry. And that's what we want to try to avoid unless, you know, this is what we're sort of getting to in this whole thing. The, the bottom line here is that the, the companies that are the most trusted, the companies that we're willing to give our data to are the companies that also give us data, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why Facebook was so successful is that it wasn't just you talking out into a chamber. You were, you were sharing your secrets and you someone else would chime back in and share a secret with you, a friend or a, str- a, new, right. a new friend or a stranger. So that kind of two-way communication is why people tr- have that kind of trust. And, and uh, setting a precedent, your phrase, I'm going to grab that and flip that around, the precedent will be that we're setting is if you're a criminal, you now know whatever you do on your phone cannot be divulged because if it's a locked phone and mm-hmm. Apple and other techno producers, uh, technological device producers won't give that to the government, then your secrets are safe. 
and you can mm-hmm. do whatever you want without fear of having that become public knowledge. You can hide under that veil yeah. of privacy for yourself. So it becomes a two-way street. We're giving privacy to the bad guys as well as privacy for the rest of us who are the good guys. So anyway, I'm going to rest my case on that one. Thank you all for that great roundtable, even though it, well, it's part of our topic, really. But now it's time for the pause that refreshes. I'm not letting you off the hook on this one. Ken Sanders, you're our newcomer today. Love to know what, first of all, where are you calling from? What time of day or what, yeah, well, it's 1024 here in the East Coast of, of uh, the U.S. What time of day is it? Where you're calling from and what are you drinking that's interesting or what would you like to be drinking kent okay so i am in tampa florida where it's a nice sunny day um, as it normally is here it is 10 25 in the morning mm-hmm. and since it is still early in the morning i'm just drinking uh, a glass of water right now because i had my coffee earlier but what i would like to drink you know this weekend sometime maybe is a, a glass of my homemade sangria. Ooh. What what do you put in your homemade sangria? Is it the famous Kent Sanders sangria we've all been hearing about? There is no privacy, Kent. We know that. So is it... <laughs> Talk to me. What's in your sangria? What makes it so special? Well, I... Um... I make two types. One is red wine base, and the other one's white wine. So I typically just start off with, you know, a table wine, nothing special. Um, and I load it up with uh, fruit, so oranges, uh, lemons, limes, strawberries, blueberries. Um, squeeze everything into it so it gets a nice citrusy flavor. Um, put a little bit of uh, honey or brandy in it to give it a little bit more sweetness. Oh, now you're Mix talking. Mix it all up, and uh, my, my friends and myself, we love it. Do you tell them whether it's honey or brandy before you serve it, Ken? Because you've already got the wine base. Is that private? Is that private knowledge? You don't have to answer that. Everybody, beware! It could really pack a punch. Thank you, Ken. I'm going to take my bottle of half half drunk uh, red wine, and I'm going to make sangria this weekend in your honor. Thank you for the inspiration, Grace Scott. Where are you calling from? And you know the drill. What are you drinking? So I'm calling from New York City, which is about 28 degrees this morning. Uh, I know. So I'm, <laughs> I'm drinking coffee, but I would rather be mm-hmm. maybe on the beach of uh, some beach in the Maldives drinking some sort of fruity drink with uh, some alcohol. That would be great. Do you think you might want to join Ken for the sangria party? I mean, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Get his recipe and take it to the Maldives, and he can have it uh, in Florida, and you can have it where you're going. Thank you very much. And David Yonker, where are you calling from, and what are you drinking or thinking about? I am in frosty Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. So it's about an hour west of uh, Toronto. Uh, we had a, a good snowfall over the last couple of days, but uh, looking forward to warmer weather next week. I am drinking decaffeinated tea. This is something that uh, I, I've started drinking more of. I've, I've actually cut caffeine out of my diet. Um, it was a little rough the first several days that I did it. Uh, I was grumpy, mm-hmm. according to my family. Um, and, uh, but, but I'm doing, I'm on the other side of it and doing pretty good and, uh, would love to have a little sangria on the weekend. That sounds like a great, a great, uh, great drink to make up for the, all the decaffeinated, uh, tea I've been drinking. 
Okay, Kent Sanders, you can post your address and open house hours on any kind of private social media you choose, and we will all be there. You started something, Kent. What can I tell you? We all want sangria now. Thank you all. We're going to take an official 60-second pause that refreshes and gather our thoughts when we come back. It'll be officially the roundtable, but you know we've already, we're already deep into it. We're going to kick it off with Kent Sanders at TCS. And I have to do a shout-out to some of our colleagues at SAP who helped put the this show together and who are tweeting right now. We have Ira Burke. Ira, shout out and big hug to you. And Brad Borkin, who is uh, transplanted from the U.S. over to the U.K. And he says, SAP Radio debates Apple versus FBI. And he's using the handles at TCS, at Gray Scott. And uh, by the way, David Yonker, do you have a, a Twitter handle you'd like us to use or just at SAP? What's your pleasure? Uh, yeah, at SAP works. And then my personal Twitter handle is at David uh, P as in Peter, and then Jonker, J-O-N-K-E-R. All right, I got that. It's a secret. You know, funny story. My, my mom, who just turned 99, just came back from Florida, and I gave her a live birthday party remote via Skype from my TV studio here on Long Island. And in the middle of the show, live show, and we've got champagne in the studio, we're toaster, we got a birthday cake, balloons, and hearts, and all this good stuff. Her line goes down, and so my crew was trying to get her back on Skype. It was not her fault. It was where she was. So we finally get her back on the phone. I have a gentleman who who's a friend who is a uh, stand-up comic and a, a pantomime magician. He's doing card tricks. He's showing his Apple Watch. He's doing. I have the camera on him close up to entertain while I'm trying to get mom back on the line. So in great desperation, we got her back with partially, and I'm yelling, Mom, the password for your Mac, because I had her, her on uh, Log Me In Remote <laughs> on my iPad. I'm watching her struggle to get back on. Mom, the password for your Mac is that I'm yelling it out over live TV, and everybody's looking at me and saying, Bonnie, really? I said, listen, who's going <laughs> to hack into the Mac, the third generation hand-me-down family Mac of a woman who just turned 99 the day before? Anyway, she is very tech savvy, and she did get back on Skype, and we finished the birthday party. So there, so much for privacy. <laughs> yes, we're changing the password on her Mac. I digress. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, a lot more. Our topic today is here's looking at you, kid, and listening to Internet of Things, familiarly known as IoT, and cybercrime. Are are we letting the bad guys and girls in inadvertently in our quest for convenience and connectivity and fun and all these good things? Maybe yes. We're going to find out more when we come back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Justin out. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Insights from totally new sources of data, sensors that capture and share what is happening in your business environment, and the tools to understand it and act on it. These are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Internet of Things with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Internet of Things with Game Changers. Indeed, here we are, Internet of Things with Game Changers. By the way, those of you who enjoy the voice of our announcer, he passed away about two months ago. He was R.C. Reynolds, one of my favorite voiceover artists who did so many of the intros and outros for Game Changers Radio. So a shout-out to R.C. wherever you are. I hope your voice is resonating wherever you're connecting these days. We do miss you. We really miss you. Anyway, let's kick off on a happier note our roundtable. Kent Sanders at TCS. Kent, you sent me some very provocative statements in your notes before the show, so I'm going to pick one and let's get started. You say, the more virtually connected we are, the more isolated we become. Let me just read one statement here. Social media is a great platform connecting for connecting people, but it also tends to create clicks of people who navigate toward those postings that amplify their current beliefs. Couldn't be more true. Kent, you want to expand this for us, please? Yeah, so I was reading a, an editorial in the New York Times yesterday, and I, I can't remember the writer's name, but he is um, he's the person that's basically credited with kicking off the Arab Spring because he was the one that went on uh, Facebook when the uh, protests in um, Egypt were happening, and he, he basically shared that with the world. And what he wrote was that at the time he thought that all you needed to to have a revolution was the internet. But what he found afterwards was once the initial fervor died down and, and it became time to actually try to make things work, a lot of what they did was co-opted, you know, by the Muslim Brotherhood, by the government, and a lot of rumors, disinformation started flying around and even, you know, within the, the groups of the protesters, they started coalescing into these individual cliques. And the more and more these people talked about things, the harder their positions became, and the less people were willing to cooperate and, and work together. So they, everything fell apart because nobody could cooperate because it was like a hive mentality. Everybody that joined these different groups thought exactly the same way, had the same priorities, and it was just overly amplified, and they weren't willing to listen to other people. You know, it was another editorial that I read um, yesterday. I think it was by David Brooks in the Times. And he was talking about, you know, how movements have died off. You know, comparing things back in the, the 60s and somewhat the 70s, that people got involved in movements and enabled them to get outside of themselves and become part of a greater thing. And we have just the opposite effect. And I think social media just amplifies that even more. And the other you know, thing that I thought of is if you look at how social media draws us in as opposed to expanding us out, initially it does expand out, but it tends to draw you into a you know, like-minded group. What happens when we're collecting data on everything we do? You know, so our phones are collecting data. You wear Fitbit to see how you know, your health mm-hmm. is. Do we get to the point to where that drives our narcissism so much that we want to spend more time staring at our belly buttons, you know, than wondering what our friends and neighbors are doing? Mm-hmm. 
Very interesting. Yes, introspection, narcissism. Nasty word, still a nasty word. Uh huh. And if you look at Facebook, Kent, if we all look at Facebook, don't you get tired of people talking about where they went for dinner and how many backstage passes they got on Broadway and all the famous people they know and the pictures of their grandchildren and their new car and how cute their dog is. Really? Kent, does that just make you tired already? Well, you know, actually, I, I'd rather have that than everybody barking <laughs> out their political beliefs. And, I see I see it all, but you're, you're right. Talking down everybody else, you know. It, um, it is kind of benign least, fun. Yeah, yeah, I mean, at least when people are talking about what they've done or who they've met, they're sharing their experiences, and they're not just yelling at the top of their, their lungs in opposition to something else. Okay, I said corrected. I, I do appreciate that. And I know people who do rants on Facebook and they quickly get unfriended because we don't really want that in our faces every day. Grace Scott, talk to us. What do you think about the comments that Ken Sanders just shared, please? Well, I think that's in line with this Borg idea that we're moving towards, uh, in a way we are more moving towards a hive mind where we are all thinking about the same things, whether we think the same exact way on those issues is one thing. But I do think that we're moving towards uh, a digital future where we can have some agreement and let some of the things go that have sort of been in our way for a very long time, right? So we know that if you look at social media now, if you look at the Internet of Things now, that people are embracing uh, you know, devices that are helping them get healthier. So that, let's just take that for an example. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fitbit was hugely successful and is hugely successful uh, because people realize that exercise increases your longevity. So that in itself is, is how we can transform our future by becoming uh, connected in that way. And I don't think it's always negative. Uh, I don't think that we have to fear... I mean, personally, I don't care if someone knows how much I weigh. <laughs> so if my, if my, if my smart uh, scale, which I do have one, if, if that tells people how much I weigh, I don't really care about that. But what I care about is if someone tries to shame me if I'm on a diet and I'm eating pizza, right? So that's the kind of stuff that we have to be aware of is what is the intention of the Internet of Things? Are we trying to use those things to hurt each other? Or are we trying to move our, our, our culture forward? Very interesting. Very interesting point of view. Hadn't thought about that way. The shaming and uh, moving forward versus poking at people, picking at people, embarrassing people on purpose and very publicly. David Younger, talk to us. Well, you know, with uh, I got three teenage daughters, and it's it's fascinating to see their, you know, the way they approach uh, social media and and just generally actually their relationships, right? And and how social media is sort of almost shapes the way they interact with others. Um, you know, I, I can see the Borg mentality in this, you know, they, they, um, in that sense that they, you know, they are, uh, I mean, teenagers have always cared about what other, you know, what other te- teenagers think, right? And, oh, yeah. um, but there's this social media sort of seems to change just the way they interact, right? And, and this, the, you know, this need to, to uh, conform and, you know, everyone wants the likes. The number of times I hear, oh, I posted this picture and I got X number of likes or I made this Mm -hmm. comment or whatever it was. And, you know, which is really this idea of, um, you know, how how well do I sort of uh, fit in and agree with, you know, with my group? Um, You know, so you can see 
see that. The, um, uh, you know, I, I think that in terms of, um, you know, to to um, to the points about that Grace Gray was uh, making about. Um, uh, you know, what information they share. Uh, clearly, my kids don't actually care what information they share, right? They're very open mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of information they post, the pictures they post, the number of times, for example, that they're posting pictures when they just got, you know, they, they just got up first thing in the morning and, uh, you know, or they're, right. they're given that stupid look or face or whatever it is. And <laughs> that's just kind of, you know, they don't care about uh, the image they don't care always, uh, or in the same way that we did, you know, what kind of image that they're, they're presenting. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to Gray's point, um, you know, there's lots of information that my kids put out there, that I put out there, that my wife puts out there, you know, where I don't care if people know, um, you know, but it's, it's how, you know, who's going to take that information and use it in some sort of nefarious way, right? And, and uh, you know, I love the idea of, um, you know, if, if everyone's sort of building towards a better future, um, then why not allow people to use that information, right? If, if my gene, you know, the sequence of my gene helps, you know, uh, someone live longer because, you know, we can study that and understand the implications of, uh, you know, certain diseases, then fantastic, right? But, you know, if we're sharing my genes so that they can figure out how to, you know, give me a virus that's going to kill me, well, clearly I'm not so interested in that. Um, and, uh, but the, the challenge becomes, you know, and some things are very black and white in terms of, well, this is for a better future and this is not, um, you know, but who decides what a, a better future looks like, right? Because some people, uh, you know, will have different views of what that, what that is, right? As we can tell from the political debates in the United States right now. Oh, boy. Another topic, <laughs> another show. Not here. Not here. We did our debate. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. And shout out to your daughters. I'm going to move along because we are moving along to Grace Scott. And thank you for that great opening topic, Ken Sanders. Appreciate it. Grace Scott, we, we're talking about predicting the future. We're talking about cybercrime, hacking, inviting the bad boys and girls in unwittingly. So here's one of the talking topics you sent me. I think is very intriguing. You say big data could predict hacking of IoT in the near future. Is that kind of inside out that, I don't know, it just sounds to me like it's it's going around in a circle there. So talk to me, Gray. What are we talking about here? Well, so one of the things we have to think about is uh, by 2020, the estimates are that the IoT will be around 50 billion devices. So you have to imagine that there are going to be 50 billion of these devices in our daily lives by 2020. And... If that's the case, and if big data is constantly mining us, right, so every time you use your Fitbit, you're, you know, that information is going into the cloud. Every time you uh, use your smart toothbrush, uh, which actually exists now, or every time you use really? uh, your smart sink, or any of these devices that come in contact with your body and that can tell the cloud you know, what have you eaten, uh, you know, what are your blood sugar levels, and, and these kinds of things. Uh, that are, what are your stress levels? That's another thing to think about. So, right, so think about a terrorist who is in a very calm situation uh, culturally, and yet their stress level is peaking. Now, a very advanced, uh, you know, IoT culture would be able to highlight that person and say something is off, 
in their chemistry? Why are they so, uh, why is their stress level so high? And so when we get into a stage where we start connecting nano, uh, nanobots into our brains and into our bodies, it's going to be very hard for, for someone who has a nefarious intention to, to get that far because the system will be so predictive, the, the big data system will be so predictive that, that it will send triggers into that artificial intelligence system and somewhere along the way there will be safeguards that say, okay, we need to look, in, we need to look at this person and see what's happening. So it's preventative. So... I do think we're going to see a future that is predictive. I mean, we get into sort of a minority report idea here, but it's not based on psychics. It's actually based on real, tangible, quantifiable data. And that's what we like, tangible, quantifiable data. Thank you. David Yonker, love to have you comment on what Gray just introduced, please. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think that the, there will be ways that people can hack around that. I mean, already today... Um, you know, a, a good um, good security software on a network can can figure out whether someone's been hacked or hasn't on their computers, right? Because there are certain behavior. You know, if if your computer is sending off uh, uh, you know bits of data to some weird place on the planet, that's probably not that's probably a good sign that something weird. You know, something odd is going on. That's that's sort of atypical. Um, you know, so there are patterns within the data today for for uh, for good. For good software, um, but I think that um, uh, you know Gray's absolutely right. Right, in the future, as we have more data and you know from sensors and the, and the like, you know we'll be able to predict what's normal behavior or not normal behavior. In fact, one of the um, cases that we were um, um, doing some looking at for SAP was actually just on the on the topic of uh, terror attacks. Um, you know, and how do you you predict uh, odd behavior within an airport. So, for example, they know that um, there, you know, the, the uh, I forget the, the names of the terrorists, but essentially the, the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber um, both made it onto a plane with bombs, right? The, the traditional detection systems didn't, didn't uh, spot them. But looking at um, the behavior on cameras after the fact, um, the, uh, it was clear that they had there were uh, very strong behavioral symptoms that if uh, in terms of the, their behavior within the airport that would have predicted that in fact that they were probably people that were very apprehensive um, and uh, and nowadays with cell phones most people going into an airport with a cell phone and a signal right and a signal that you can actually track the location of um, you know there there are thoughts that you can actually predict what's odd behavior you know do they uh, shy away from security people moving around at the building. Do they uh, move to places within the airport, um, you know, where they're more hidden uh, from view? You know, do they follow an atypical pattern through the airport? You know, do they scope things out before they go through the security line? You know, these are all sort of behaviors, you know, that with uh, sensors, in fact, we're all, many of us carrying a sensor with our cell phone, um, you know, just with time and people putting in the effort, we can figure out a lot and predict a lot. But there are risks, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, do we get to the minority report scenario where, you know, people get labeled, well, that was a weird behavior and therefore we, we, we think that you're this kind of a person. Um, you know, uh, it has implications for how we view people, right? Um, 
who haven't really necessarily done anything, but you know, uh, predictive algorithms decided that they fit some sort of pattern or or, mm-hmm. or um, um, you know characteristic. We get into profiling. There you go. Thank you very much. I want to circle back to Ken Sanders at TCS. Ken, thoughts on what Gray just introduced and David just expanded for us? Yeah. So. Um, in agreement with David's last point, I think when we start trying to predict individual actions based on data that we're collecting, you get into huge civil liberty issues. Because what it boils down to is no matter how somebody is acting, you don't know what's in their mind or in their heart. Um, there could be many reasons someone's nervous in an airport. There could be reasons someone's just walking through the, ner- through the airport sweating, many physical conditions that could make that mm-hmm. happen. You know, so while technically it may be possibly to do it, the question is, is that the type of society we want to live in? Um, yeah, who is it? Uh, was it Franklin or someone that says, um, oh, something about... Uh, you know, if you value safety over freedom, you'll never be free or something along that lines. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that, and maybe this is just my personal thing that stresses me, is when I hear politicians, especially the president of the United States, I don't care who the president is, talking about his job is to protect the American people. And no, it's not. His job is to protect the Constitution. We live in a free society, therefore we take risk. And the more that we try to make ourselves 100% safe, the more and more our freedoms disappear. You know, so from an individual level, just because we have the technology to do it, I don't know if that means that we should do it. If I look at it from a business viewpoint, big data can help greatly when it comes to predicting attacks on business, cyber attacks on business. But it requires that those businesses share the information on when they've been attacked because, you know, large companies get attacked every day so that you could have some big data system that's able to look at, you know, the, the type of attacks that have happened over the last 24 hours, 48 hours, six months, nine months, a year, whatever, uh, in different industries based on these parameters and is able to notify ahead of time that, hey, you can expect to have an attack in this space. But... It requires companies sharing very, very sensitive data with some organization outside of their control, which I would imagine no company is going to really want to do that. Hmm. Thank you very much. Very thoughtful. And uh, this is a very philosophical conversation we're having. I want to thank Gray for that topic. And David Yonker, we are just about at the point in the show where we go for our predictions. And you know I love the year 2020. But in fairness to you, because you sent me such wonderful talking points, I'm going to pick one out of the hat here, David Yonker, and just give you a minute to tell us what it means or what, what you're thinking about. You say even things need their privacy. So are things now Im- imbued with persona, personality, civil rights, if you will. What are you thinking, David Yonker? No, uh, what, what I mean by that is that, um, uh, you know, things actually represent us, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the smart toothbrush, you know, obviously the smart toothbrush, that data represents exactly what we've done. But, you know, a sensor and a tire sort of represents us too, right? So, you know, there's been work by tire manufacturers to put sensors in there, uh, in their tires, so that you can measure just the pressure of the tire. It seems very innocuous, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, then these trucks, in particular for large commercial trucks, then these trucks can kind of drive around the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the continent. And as uh, the tire pressure goes down, uh, you know, you, the driver can be alerted so that they can, you know, fill the tire and have an optimal uh, pressure level. Um, so it sounds very innocuous, but the way it's done is that data is beamed up to a central place along with the GPS coordinates. So now the sensor is actually um, collecting information about the person behind it, the driver in particular. You know, each of those tires is associated with that driver. Um, and so now you're building uh, information that generally is probably innocuous. Where was that driver at any given time? But but maybe it isn't. Um, and And so, you know... Most things, you know, are uh, have some form of human data that they're collecting, or that that's represented within that within that thing's data. Um, and uh, and given that, you know, there's questions about. I mean, I, the future is not a private future, right? So I put privacy in quotes, right? Privacy has been sort of a blip on, um, you know, the continuum of history. Um, and uh, but but. The, the concepts behind privacy are critical uh, to ensure, right, that everyone is protected, um, not necessarily from privacy, but from harm. Um, and, and so, you know, even things, we need to give thought to how we protect the information behind those things and use it in a, in a wise way. Thank you, David. And you know what? We're so far into the end uh, segment of the show. I'm going to just say that was officially your prediction for the future. So thank you very much. Whether you know it or not, you just started the crystal ball segment. Let me circle back to Kent Sanders at TCS. Kent, I can give you one minute for your predictions. I love 2020. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. What's going to change if we meet again at some point in the future? When would that be? Not where, not what will be in your sangria that day. But what do you think will be different about IoT? Here's looking at you kid and listening IOT and cybercrime. Ken Sanders, go. Well, when it comes to IOT and cybercrime, um, I think it's just, this, it's still going to be continuing the constant battle of uh, safety and security versus privacy. I don't, I don't see that changing. But when I think about IOT as a whole, one of the big things I see happening is by 2020, you know, complex event processing networks take over the world. And what I mean by that is machines making business decisions for us. Of course, based on business rules that we've put into them, you know, and freeing people from making mundane decisions. Because as you collect information from sensors and and everything else that's IoT related and code business rules into a complex event processing network, you can head off things at the pass that just by the time that you get the information to a human and they're able to analyze it, maybe too late. So I see computers and machines making a lot of you know, mundane business decisions for us by 2020. Thank you very much. Very profound. Appreciate that. Gray Scott, our futurist, our official futurist. I think we're all futurists today. Gray, what do you predict and how far in the future can you look? Well, there are several things that we can think about that are going to be happening in the near future. Um, one of the things we know for sure is that that the IoT will quantify and predict our future. Whether that is accurate or not can be debated. And one of the things that I've been saying is that for IoT to work properly, it has to have full transparency. 
So in other words, imagine using or supplying the Internet of Things with false data. That creates false data loops. So for example, if you're afraid that someone's monitoring your smart toothbrush, because we've brought that up several times, or, mm-hmm. or monitoring your health through your Fitbit, and you, you put false information into that system, you can see how that would affect corporations, how, how it, it would affect the system as a whole. And so what we have to think about is how do false data sets in the future change the Internet of Things? And here's, here's just to finish this off, here's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. There are apps right now that allow you to superimpose in video in real time, superimpose celebrities, celebrity faces onto your face. And so you can oh. use that face and the, the algorithm puts, superimposes the face of the celebrity on your face as you're talking in the video. Now, of course, everyone can tell that it's fake, but mm-hmm. look at that in 10 or 15 years. You may, Bonnie, you may call me on a video call and I may trans, transplant my face with someone else's face. I like your face, Greg. I want you to keep your face. <laughs> Thank you for that prediction. You just, just hit me where it hurt. Okay, we are out of time. What an interesting conversation. This is, by the way, episode number 12 in Internet of Things with Game Changers. One more to the season, and rumor has it that Ira Burke is planning to renew. So we will be recycling and starting all over again with brand new topics. Ira and Brad and David, I think we should do part two of this topic. Very compelling, and we just literally just scratched the surface. Ken Sanders at TCS, thank you. Grace Scott, as always, David P. Yonker, thank you very much. Shout out to Brad and to Ira at SAP. And Sherry Ann Meyer was tweeting with us today. And Tiffany Stronsky, thank you, everyone. And I'm out of time. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? It's going to catch up to you. You may as well go out and grab it. Go out and be a game changer today. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.